0: Hey folks, today's episode is a little different. Reverend Richard Lawrence, who protested with Martin Luther King Jr. as part of the historic march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama in 1968, was featured a little while back on Popular Nation, where he discussed a lifetime of dedication to social justice, civil rights and equality. He talks about his early days in the church and the movement, how he picked his specific church spoiler alert, it's because they had a baseball team. (laughs) He compares the issues and efforts then versus now. He talks about the wins, the losses, the progress, and the toll it took on his life and relationships. You can hear and watch the full interview on Popular Nation's YouTube channel. Special shout out to Sarah over at Popular Nation for the work on this piece and go to the Popular Nation YouTube channel for lots of entertaining and interesting stories. Our story begins, as these stories often do.
1: Underlying that, um, you know, is the unconsciousness of a sort of um, deification of whiteness. Um, So that if, obviously, I was light-complexioned, I was closer to being white. And being white is good control who lives who dies who tells your story the church has been a critically important part of my life when we were having black services with uh, other black churches and i would sing they would quite ungracefully make fun of me what what happened to your soul you know what what happened to you um you should see him dance
0: Oh, story story,
1: let's hear another story. Story
0: story. That one was just sad. A good friend of mine said the woke have to make room for the waking. And there's this whole kind of chest puffing about well, I've been doing it since this or I believed in it since that and and, and that's great. And it's great if you have bona fides and everything, but let's start let's start today. And if somebody just wakes up today, Let's celebrate, let's join the, join the party, don't create a separate party, let's make a big thing, let's make a big tent that everybody can get under. It was a matter of life or death.
1: Pastored the Methodist church, and then when he organized a baseball team, it was all over. I
0: joined the Methodists and uh, played baseball. They had a mission. You know they had things specifically to fight for they had to get the right to vote they had to sit anywhere on a bus share water fountains share counters and specific specific goals this is stuff that happened I mean, this is my father this isn't in a history book this isn't a, a someone on a slave ship this isn't someone in the civil war i mean this is my father who went through these things i have to say that's the most amazing story i ever heard
1: this is richard lawrence a social justice
0: advocate that marched with Martin Luther King Jr. during the Chicago Freedom Movement. Join us as we have a conversation with this
1: former minister turned affordable housing advocate along his journey through life. Chicago has had a uh, long history of problems with gangs and with murders, very high incidents of murder in Chicago. This isn't new and it isn't related to the current uh, demonstrations on
0: police violence. My insight to it is obviously I could walk into any room and be considered, especially off season, Mm -hmm. white. (laughs) And then I hear a lot of things that people don't necessarily say in mixed company and everything like that and, and people people tell you who they are people try you know and if you just listen they'll tell you they'll tell you who they yeah, are they will. and I'm, I'm heartened that most people are good people yes, who, are. who mean and do the right thing and everything but unfortunately there's still enough and unfortunately enough with power and enough with authority and enough with resources that that they stymie and stifle some of the movement some of the progress that people can make and take away some of the opportunities and not take them away but diminish them we kind of shift the opportunities Make them hard sometimes heads. yeah consciously right. sometimes unconsciously
1: there's a sense in which the church was a lifesaver for me. Uh, I grew up in a little town in Massachusetts called Ballardvale. There were no other black families in Ballardvale. And there were two churches, one congregational, which this church is congregational, and a Methodist church. And I was really moved by a young minister from Boston Theological Seminary who uh, pastored the Methodist Church and then when he organized a baseball team it was all over. I joined the Methodists and uh, played baseball and sang in the choir and followed this guy around and he more than any other single person sort of directed me toward the ministry in in, a, in uh, the Methodist Church, which is a long story and a tough tale to tell, but um, slowly but surely, as I worked in the church, I first appreciated the fact that church is in business to really spend full time caring for other people, um, and my definition of caring for other people included being willing to take on the tough issues. And the church is not good at that. The church is trying to build a constituency. And the more things you can do that people agree with, the better off you are. Um, So this church and its pastor really do, a ministry of social justice, they don't simply, you know, Emphasize and, and merely exclusively emphasize the things that hold us together. They, they they work on the things that are really difficult. And when we moved out here in 1998, I checked in at the church and they uh, very warmly included me as a part of the ministry and as a part of the membership. So
0: the church has been a critically important part of my life. You kind of instilled an uninterruptible desire to do the right thing and to stand for good things whenever whenever given the choice of of, of ignoring or embracing or sometimes obviously you know confronting. And it's I've often grown up it's super proud of course, you know, the pictures and the history and the stories and the things like that, but I was always kind of, kind of lost because they had a, they had a mission. You know, they had things specifically to fight for. They had to get the right to vote. They had to sit anywhere on a bus, share water fountains, share counters, and specific, specific goals. And we're going to protest. We're going to get signatures. We're going to march. We're going to do this until, uh, until we've reached this goal. And then you can celebrate. You can say, now we can vote. Now we've eliminated redlining. Now we've, I mean, whatever the, the policy was, or the, whatever it was, there was a goal. And then there was this long period of, of vague progress and vague goals and and invisible ceilings and invisible obstacles and things like that, which made it certainly more difficult to celebrate, to achieve, to check a list, but certainly as important, if not more important, uh, to confront and to, to deal with the stuff daily. And when you have that, and you, you kind of force your friends and force your family and force yourself to think about things in different ways and to, to challenge and to, to change convention. It's it's kind of, I hate to call it a burden, but it, 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 it was just a part of me. It's just a part of me that I, I can't see injustice without speaking up. And I know that sounds kind of cartoony and superhero-y or whatever, but it's just difficult to not say something when you see something and that's probably the biggest thing is is just standing up for the people who can't necessarily stand up for themselves and the people who can't, who don't have the same voice and the same power, things like that. Just, just stand up for them and to, you know, and then racial awareness. I think a lot of people, I think the misconception is if we, if we don't see color, that everything will be okay and I don't see black and white, I don't see Asian or, you know, Hispanic or I don't see any of these things. And and that's not the answer. The answer is to see it and be aware of it and to be aware of the burdens and the challenges and the differences and the heritage and the history, as much as you can. You don't have to memorize every bit of everybody's culture, but you should certainly have a healthy curiosity about it. You should certainly have a healthy respect for it. And you should certainly try and squash things that, that put it in a box and limit it. And then, you know, let everyone out of their box, let everyone out of their their limitations and try and provide opportunities and at least an equal footing for everyone to do things like that that was that's kind of been you know both my mom and dad put that in me years years I, I can't remember a time not being part of a crusade or an election or a cause or something I, I remember stuffing envelopes at six years old passing them out and having friends over and stuff like that yeah I grew up in an all- black neighborhood and I was the I was the white kid even though I was you know the half black kid um, but that's, that's where I was comfortable growing up. And that's where I'm comfortable now. I find an odd comfort around old black people because they were the parents and they were the aunts and uncles. They were the big brothers. They were you know, the people in the neighborhood who took care of us and who raised us and who taught us stuff. So when I see a group of black people, it's, it's, it's comforting rather than threatening. And I don't know that that would have been the case had I not grown up there, then we moved away and it was very different. But being exposed to it and being indoctrinated, I guess, early and just saying that they're people, they're not black people, they're not criminals, they're not, they're just people. Yeah. And, and never considering that they were black people or anything like that, just considering they were just people. And so the church's first
1: mission to, to those of us who were, who were slaves and, and black was to pro- provide us a place where we would feel safe where we would feel hope. And so the theme became um, never give up. Um, There's uh, hope. There's a new life in the great by and by. And so we began to think that the only hope we had was dying. That the only peace we'd have is when we die. The only happiness we'd have is when we die. And that, that became a really strong message of
0: salvation for millions of, uh, of black slaves. My dad, in 65, 1965, went back to, or went to Selma. Got a, a kind of aspiring picture of a young Richard Lawrence with a bullhorn talking to a bunch of freedom fighters and, and motivated people trying to cure the world's ills back in the day, and um, That was uh, right after Bloody Sunday, and uh, John Lewis and the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and it was, it was obviously a a, a turning point in history, but we also, my dad being there, he wanted to go back for the 50th anniversary, so that was a big moment, we got all of, uh, there's four of us siblings, and uh, all four of us were able to go back and, and walk across the bridge and recreate and do a lot of that stuff, actually it was, it was really cool, Um, he got, he got notified. Uh, recognized with a medal because he was one of the originals. They had a big ceremony, and all the people who walked across the first time got little medals and a presentation and everything. And that, obviously, and I was two years old. I was born in '63. That happened in 1965. I wanted to go, but he didn't like and, uh, and, 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 I mean, it's just part of the freedom-fighting footprint of our family. You know, I mean, we, we that's how we were raised. You know, both my parents were very involved in very civil rights stuff. So they passed that just through education and belief and exposure to different things down to us. And then I'd pass it on to my children and hopefully to my friends and then, then to their friends. And, the, and then we get out more firsthand because this is stuff that happened. I mean, this is my fault. This isn't in a history book. This isn't a... Uh, someone on a slave ship. This isn't someone in the Civil War. I mean, this is my father who went through these things and had to face a lot of these things. So it becomes very personal. It becomes very hands-on history. It becomes something like that. So that when I can pass that on to my daughter and all those values, she's she's very active. Both my boys are, are active, but my daughter's super active. Isabel marches and goes to protests and she organizes and she she borrowed a couple of... Uh, I, 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 I have a sound system. She brought the speakers and the microphones so people could speak, and and that's how that's how we kind of connected the Selma to this this latest thing.
1: When I went to Selma in '65, really, it was because um, Dr. King was associated with the with with the movement, and, and I obviously came to really admire him. And as his story became known, um, I became more and more um, enthralled. So when then he decided to move to Chicago, and he lived in Chicago for a year, and, and when I was still living there, he moved to the west side. I lived on the south side um, because of open housing. And he had a summer of open housing marches, which were the most violent, open house demonstrations you could imagine. Tell
0: me what open house means.
1: When a home went on the market, it was not restricted to sale to another white person. And the neighborhoods in Chicago, when, because of that restriction, were severely segregated. And so to open the housing markets to Blacks, required an incredible amount of uh, pressure, and White's responded to that pressure. Um, I, I don't think um, I can describe accurately what it's like to, to be in a, uh, in a march with Dr. King um, and have National Guardsmen with their rifles and bayonets on the end of their rifles, holding off folks who wanted to get to you. Um, so you're saying the
0: white folks? These are white folks who
1: were who were opposing.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, open housing. And they'd throw rocks and bottles and all, all kind of stuff. Dr. King was struck any number of times in those marches, and um, I never got hit. I don't exactly know what magic I carried with me, but I, I was I was lucky. And then, when he moved to Chicago, the organizations that were active became part of the Council for Community Organizations that, with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference of Dr. King, became the Chicago Freedom Movement. So we would sit with Dr. King in meetings for um, what the next march was going to be, what the strategy was going to be. what. what we should be aware of, um, and well, I was independently of Dr. King working on a group called the Angled Action Committee, which was the organization that I represented in the council community organization. So we got to know each other, um, and we had been working on an urban renewal project,
0: you and MLK?
1: It, no, um, the Englewood Action Committee. Okay. We've been working on an urban renewal project on the south side um, that the bank, which you see in this picture, was the primary sponsor of and typically uh, was serving white customers. But as blacks moved further and further west. They moved out of that community, whites moved out of that community, and it became a black community. And whites would no longer shop at 63rd and Halstead Street. So the geniuses at the bank said, well, let's build an access road, we'll provide parking. Those folks can come in, shop, and get back out, and they won't even know they've been in the black community. That's with urban renewal money. And they did it and we did everything in the world. We could to stop it. One of them was to demonstrate at Chicago city bank that we were opposed to it. And that's that, that's That's this, that's That's Chicago city bank. You can actually see it in the, Mm -hmm. in the, in the picture Mm -hmm. and with a group of ministers and we all pulled our money out of the banks some of them were church accounts, some of them were personal accounts. And the day that we were scheduled to go. We got news all of a sudden that Dr. King was going to join us. And so I I say quite proudly, I not only marched with Dr. King, Dr. King marched with me. (laughs) Um, And that was was our march. And he joined us and one of his staff, the guy here named James Orange, um, suggested we burn a bank book. So we did, and the photographer from the Chicago Daily Defender, which is a black paper in Chicago, uh, took that picture. And I was able to get him to send me a a copy. And of course, um, treasure it. It, uh, it, 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 It's the most meaningful symbol of um, my participation in a a really, really, Dr. King motivated hundreds of thousands of folks to stand up on their feet and risk their lives for the right to vote and the right to, to, to buy a house. In Chicago in those days, you, a black person couldn't get a mortgage loan at a bank. They had to buy their houses on land contracts from the current owners. Um, we're trying to put an end to that. Mm-hmm. And Dr. King had inspired me, and then he goes overboard, and comes to a march on the south side, walks with me, and burns a bank book with me, and tells me that
0: you're okay, Reverend Lawrence. You're okay. Um, well, my dad could tell you the whole story, but for us, I mean, I, for those of you who've never opened a history book, the guy in the middle is Martin Luther King. Um, James Orange is another instrumental what about the person. the guy on the right there? And this guy, I don't know, some guy. No, this is my dad. And it was it's obviously being in a picture with Martin Luther King is pretty special. It's pretty spectacular. And then the movement. They were burning bank books at a bank who wouldn't hire or promote black people, despite the fact that most of their clients and um, people who had money in the bank were black and the community they served was black, but they wouldn't hire and promote black people. And and again, this picture is just kind of like, oh, yeah, well, you think you're part of the movement? BAM! This is my (laughs) dad, Martin Luther King. What? What? What now?
1: The uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was a partner um, with Dr. King's organization on efforts to register blacks to vote. And there were any number of uh, districts in the South where blacks of voting age outnumbered whites. And as a result, whites made it impossible for blacks to register because if they voted, they could obviously elect uh, somebody of their choosing, whether it was black or white, and a speaker from the from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, was making the rounds to invite folks to come to Selma. And the the way he put it was, they might beat the crap out of us, but when there are white folks in the in, in the demonstration. They're a lot more thoughtful about it. It doesn't say they won't do it, but they're a lot more thoughtful about it. And and he just made a a pressing case, which who has to make a pressing case about the fact that there are folks down south who can't vote? Um, These are supposed to be U.S. citizens. How how come they can't vote? I want to put a stop to that. They should obviously be able to vote. And Selma was one of those places where the youth in that town, as was shown in the um, the first mark on Bloody Sunday, um, really were leading the way. This was really, these were Selma folks who were on their feet, you know, um, showing how much they wanted uh, to change the situation that prevented them from voting. And Dr. King invited... Uh, Ministers in particular uh, and anybody else to come to Selma and stand with the blacks who wanted to register to vote in Selma and um, in march from Selma to Montgomery. It was five days. Um, I really wanted to march. and we had a little bit of a tussle uh, after we had arrived there, uh, because they put you in different work teams. And they wanted to put me in a work team that would clean up the cow pastures where we were going to be sleeping. Um, and um, I, I didn't like that very much. So we all agreed that we would at least march the first leg, and then we'd go to our camps. A bit. So I did, I did clean up some cow pastures. Um, and every night, we had a, a rally, and uh, Harry Belafonte, Joan Baez, um, Pete Seeger, uh, a number of the old folk legends um, put on a show. And then we went to bed and get up and marched the next day. Um, we didn't march, because we had to take a car to the next place and be ready for when the marchers got there. Um, we finally got to um, outskirts of uh, Montgomery and uh, we all again marched from the from that last campsite to uh, uh to downtown Montgomery and Dr. King addressed the crowd. I the crowd was so huge that um the main street in which I had forgotten the name of it uh, was packed couldn't get on that. I was around the corner um uh, But the sound system was wonderful and I I heard the speech easily and clearly. Um, And then we had to get back to Selma. Um, I had brought my Volkswagen from Chicago and I'd driven some students with me. um, And I got them um, all, found them all. We got back in the Volkswagen bus and went back to uh, Selma. And on the way, we were stopped by a state trooper. Now, ordinarily, maybe not right now, but ordinarily you'd think, so you're stopped by a state trooper, so what? Mm -hmm. In in, in Alabama, in the middle of the tension of of a, a march like that, you didn't want to be stopped by anybody and the state trooper was not an exception. We had had a discussion in that bus that if we were stopped by anybody, we needed to be ready to resist. And the way we would resist is that we want one or two, however many had to, would be captured. The rest of us would run in in other directions and do our best to find some help just to have to have that discussion, you know, um, it, it is incredible. The obviously the fear that goes with having to have that discussion um, was, was just nearly overwhelming. Well, the trooper didn't want anything except to tell us that there had been a shooting on the highway and a woman... Her name is Viola Liuzzo, she was from Detroit, was shot and killed. And they wanted to be sure we didn't stop for anybody else, again, on the road. That that we should get back to Selma as quickly as possible. Um, well, we took that advice and we got back to Selma. We slept there that night, but the next day we got back in the bus and headed back for uh, Chicago. That suggests, you know, um, how terrifying uh, on the one hand Mm -hmm. and how exhilarating on the other Mm -hmm. hand um, that trip was. And it was the students who said, you know, after our rally in Chicago, we must go to Selma. And it was just the no questions asked part of that that led us to then fill the Volkswagen bus with some food, which they asked you to bring food supplies for for the folks who were marching. Uh, And uh, put a mattress over those, and students sat on the mattress uh, for the trip there and back. Um, It was um, an awful final moment, you know, when we found out that a mother from Detroit who had been ferrying, you know, marchers back and forth from Montgomery to Selma, had been killed. And they, the story ends really pretty amazingly because in the car that where the shooter was, was also an FBI agent. And because of that, there was a conviction of the shooter um, and I'm not sure what the sentence was, but um, I, I knew that the FBI was, had infiltrated any number of the freedom marchers' rallies and meetings and sort of had their ears open. Um, and I managed to uh, form a pretty fat file with the Justice Department because they were watching... Me, um, and um, so I, I, I didn't think friendly thoughts about the FBI, um, until I heard this story, and then I thought at least they could do some good when they're not really doing good. Um, you know, I don't think FBI ought to be snooping on activist activities, um. The assumption is that it, that those then are are have no good intent. I haven't been in one that didn't have good intent, and I'm surprised that if the FBI was in very many, they would have found out that there weren't very many that ever um, had any evil intent. Um, but I'm not so sure that they're inclination about us who were demonstrating even allowed them to hear uh, the positive nature of what we were trying to do.
0: You know, it's it's super ironic that when I was living in South Carolina after growing up in Chicago, that people would always say things like, well, you're not that kind of black or you're not really black or, or this and that. And when, when people found out and, and, and they'd wanna brush black people with exceptions as being good or articulate or intelligent or educated or different things and then now we're at the exact opposite of of white people many of them being cast uh, characterized as races many of them being characterized as, as being on the wrong side of history and the police in, the, in particular who have an incredibly difficult job a split second decision lots of training you can't always prepare for it and some of them come down and make bad decisions, some of it's because of bad training, some of it's because of bad people. And and unfortunately that taints everything that the police department does. And when you when you commit a crime or an atrocity or step your bounds or, or do something wrong and you're doing something right 99 times out of 100, you don't get credit for doing the right thing 99 times. You get punished for doing the wrong thing. And and it's the same with crime. You go to work, you get up every day, you, you go to work and don't rob a bank, you don't get in trouble. You The day you rob a bank, you get in trouble and get held accountable. And unfortunately, I think police are in a position, oftentimes depending on demographics, that they will assume the worst of a certain population, a certain um, demographic, and then the ones who act on that assumption Stain everyone else. Just like at the protest. When you go to a protest, we went the one in Santee, my daughter's been to several. I didn't see a single crossword from anyone, not one. However, obviously La Mesa was a little different, and you get people coming out to agitate and to stir things up. And the police, instead of coming out to engage, they come out in riot gear to protect. Which part of me understands you have to have protection. You have to have you can't let people burn things down. But you know, when you come to a fight with your fists two people can fist fight. When you come to the fight with guns and a tank and a vest and everything like that, the other side says, Well I'm not coming without my guns and a tank and a vest and everything like that. So so they subtly try by trying to be prepared, they they subtly escalate it. And that's that creates the tension and it escalates the tension and it makes people who are not comfortable around police and authority even more uncomfortable. It's a it's a very difficult and and, and wide ranging article or argument to articulate because Look at the numbers, the numbers don't lie. And the numbers are most incidents between police and all people of all color go without incident. They go without problem, they go without anything like that. The numbers are dramatically that an incident's gonna happen, it's going to go relatively by the book and everything's gonna happen the way it should. However, there's a sliver of incidents that happen in there where things go wrong and things escalate. And the problem with that sliver is that it's normally blacks and other minorities of that sliver that go wrong. So I'm all right with the sliver that go wrong. I am, things are gonna go wrong. But when I see a 90% white population and a 10% black population, but 90% of the sliver that goes wrong is black, that tells me that we, we have a lot of work to do, that we need to fix some things.
1: And the town I grew up in was all white. And it wasn't until I graduated from college that I spent any significant amount of time in the black community. And when I did, I learned that yes, there are some jealousies associated with the complexion you've got. White was always considered to be uh, a meritorious thing in the black community. When I say was, the um, The lighter you were, the brighter you were presumed to be, and um, underlying that, um, you know, is the unconsciousness of a sort of um, deification of whiteness. Um, So that if, obviously, I was light complexioned, I was closer to being white, and being white is good and so in the black community there has been a terrible tradition of feeling that i am less of a human being less valued less important if i am dark complexioned rather than if i am light complexioned and i really experienced the conflict more from the fact that kid the, 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 the colleagues of mine kind of kidded me about the fact that I was so light complexioned, and not only light complexioned, culturally speaking, I'm white. You know, I talk like a white man. I presume to some d- degree I think like a white man. I, I write like a white man. Um, and as a result when we were having black services with uh, other black churches and I would sing, they would quite ungracefully make fun of me. Um, you, 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 what what happened to your soul? You know, what what happened to you? Um, you should see him dance. Oh God, no. <laughs> Uh, so, yes, it's, it's, it is a very, very strong and very, very negative um, power in the black culture. Uh, and we haven't gotten over it. Um, we still have to do an enormous job of getting blacks to shop in stores that are owned by blacks, to buy products that are produced by blacks. There is still an underground sense that if it's black, it's inferior. It's, it's, it's not up to snuff. I was um, asked by my mother um, to play a role that um, in her mind was the most important thing I could do, which is to live life as a good person so that my uh, model as a black person, um, really helped to move the black cause forward. And um, so white was always uh, uh, on my on my mind. And I did as a kid um, ask my sister when I had hair to to straighten it, and then I'd wear a, a, a sock, you know, nylon cap. Oh, over overnight because otherwise it would get all ruffled um, and I'd take myself to church the next day and think I was really uh, a knockout Oh, you know um, it was um, it, it was a sorry situation in a way I mean it I I, I believe my mother you know that it was a, it was our responsibility as blacks to prove to whites that we were good, acceptable human beings Uh, and I think today we're seeing that I'm not the only one who's sick of it. Um, There are lots and lots of others who are saying I'm tired of trying to prove to whites that I'm a decent human being. Enough is enough. You know, um, we have come a long way and that uh, accomplishment needs to be recognized. And the freedom that comes with being a human being means there are those days when I am, I'm in a good mood. Um, I might even try to tell a joke, which everybody knows is something I shouldn't try to do. It's like dancing. Um, you know, I, I, I'm really feeling good. But then there are days when I'm not feeling good. And I have the right to both of those experiences. You Without know, being judged, and for and it. and I need to be accepted as a human being, whether I'm in a good mood or a bad mood. And um, I unfortunately took it to mean I had to be good all the time, which generally meant I had to keep my mouth shut. Um, I I encountered a guy in 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 Michigan. Uh, on a vacation with my uh, college friend um, who came to greet us. And he, he, his, his announcement was he was really, really feeling good today. He just finished a book, the best book he'd ever seen, proving that apes were superior to Negroes. Well, um, nothing I had learned up to that point taught me what I should do about that and so I fell into the pattern of not saying anything and my roommate didn't say anything to his father and so that went by the board Um, you know it's an age now where there are very few folks who in a situation like that are going to keep their mouth shut I do believe that most of us are going to say, "What in the world are you talking about? Are you crazy?" Um, and that's a reality we have to live with today. And I didn't—I I didn't enjoy that. No, nobody would date me when I was um, a, a kid. I had my first actual date when I was twenty-some years old, and my campus minister that I was uh, then visiting with, had set it up for me, because I was so bashful I wouldn't ask anybody. Now, folks had said no so often, and and the environment still, remember through college, I was in an all-white environment. So every time I met somebody who was female in particular, it was a major encounter, and there was uh, some kind of direct connection to their parents. Because every time I turned around, they asked their parents if it was okay if they went out with me. Uh, and more often than not, their parents said, hell no, what do you want to go out with the black man for? Mm. Um, and so it was, it, it, it was a tough time. Uh, I was trying to be gracious. I was trying to be a model. Um, and I was being stepped on and um, the, the, the anger that I felt about that w- w- was subdued. Um, I think basically it was an, an incredibly unhealthy time. Mm-hmm. And Black Power, which I mentioned earlier, came to me as a liberating force. You know, I, I came to like what, my, what I thought and what i wanted and what i wanted to be and i expressed it and i chased it and um to a certain extent i reached it
0: so when you were growing up um did you watch a lot of tv and listen to radio like who did you look up to or did you not look up to anybody if there was no person that looked like you what would you do
1: first of all i'm one of 15 kids Mm -hmm. um and I really did look up to my brothers and sisters. And um, they were um, phenomenal models. All five of my oldest brothers were in the Second World War. And when they, and when they came back, I was about 12 years old. And just about the time I could make a really serious relationship with them, get to know them. And they came back from the war thinking that they wanted to have a relationship, but it wasn't with their brother. They wanted to have a relationship that would lead them to the aisle, um, And so I didn't get to know my older brothers very well, but all of them came back from the war saying the same thing, and that it's hell to fight for a country when you see your fellow GIs treating German prisoners of war better than they treat them and it's been no surprise that after both the first world war and the second world war there were a number of race riots in this country and because soldiers were mad they had gone off they had they had made the sacrifice which was supposed to be really respected widely respected deeply respected by everybody and they couldn't even get respect
0: while they were serving as soldiers for the united states in regards to athletes, um, to me, it's a complete, easy socially. Uh, it's a social. It's a socio-economic issue because black people for years, like I, as a child, never saw, you know, probably until Cosby, a professional black person on television. I never saw a doctor or a lawyer, and you know what I saw? I saw basketball players and football players and and uh, rappers and yes I was around like Sugar Hill gang when you know that <laughs> by Friday. but but he, or or just black so Sammy Davis Jr. I mean even going back I mean that the successful black people that we saw were athletes musicians drug dealers and that's what we saw so whereas a white kid might see their neighbor who's a doctor their parent who's a dentist their so and so who's a postman there are all these professions that exist black people saw success through sports or through and for a ten dollar basketball, 20, 30 kids can play at the park for hours. Whereas in hockey, for example, that's why there there are not many black hockey players because skates, sticks, pads, pucks, ice, rinks, and and some of that's some of that's loving out, and which is great. And but it's it's a socio and even baseball you need you need nine gloves, you need bats, you need bases, you need a field. With football, you need grass and a ball. That's why, you know, in basketball, you need a court, which they have them at public parks everywhere, and a ball. And everybody can play. And and if you wanted to play, you had to be good. The people, you, you win, you keep playing. You lose, you stop, and I have to wait your turn again. So, so both measured towards ultimate success in life and temporary success on the playground on the weekends, you had to be good. And... Track and field, because as a kid we ran. I grew up, like I said, I grew up in an all-black neighborhood. We ran, we raced, we we did this stuff, and it, you know what? It cost nothing. And so the the note and baseball. That's why it took a lot longer for more African Americans to get involved, is because as it took a while for availability to the masses: bats, balls, fields, umpires, scoreboards, all these things. Whereas football and basketball were ahead because you didn't need all the socioeconomic infrastructure. You just needed. A hoop and a ball, or you needed a football in a field, some grass. So that combined with the lack of of role models, no nobody said, "Hey, I'm going to be a doctor like Mister Jones," or "I'm going to be you know whatever," because we never saw that. You know what we saw was, you know, reasonably professional, successful, maybe construction, maybe you know more more labor intensive jobs. And uh, we had one guy in our neighborhood who was a musician, and he was great. Oscar Lindsey Trio, shout out, and. Um, you know, but that's what we saw. So Mr. Lindsay was super successful because he was a musician. And that was all, you know, we, we didn't see the, the preponderance of doctors, lawyers, and you know, store managers, retail executives, corporate, whatever, the accountants, we never saw any of that. So again, recently we're seeing more of that. And I think that helps bridge some of the, the racial gap is just showing a 10 year old black kid Doctors make a hundred K per year to start you go to school be a doctor because that was never put in our heads That was just something that was unattainable. This picture is um, One of the family pictures of my dad He's 10 here of 15 with my grandfather and my grandmother. That's the best picture we have He died very young one of my dad's brothers He's one of 15 and people say your dad doesn't look black you know, these are this is the this is the color spectrum of his fifteen, him and fourteen siblings, but the fifteen kids, and um, they're very much indeed black. They don't, you know, and it it just means a lot. Another Trump card to say we, oh yeah, I'm not black enough for you. What about this? It's my family. I ain't like my family. We're black. Deal with it. Uh, <laughs> but again, it's family, and we just love to have. These family pictures have been up, and it's interesting. My dad hasn't noticed this picture that's been hanging here for years, just because. I mean, we have all kinds of family pictures everywhere, and they just become part of the scenery in the and Not, you know, we don't we don't typically take them out and put them on the kitchen table and go, "Hey, everybody, look at these pictures." <laughs> but uh, obviously, proud, proud of my family. I love my family. I love all of our history and all of our things that we do. One of the uh
1: great disappointments in my life is that the cause of racial justice really consumed me virtually entirely. And my first wife, who raised the kids, um, took virtually all the responsibility for the house, and and I got divorced. And we got divorced because there was a really painful transition in the civil rights movement from a total commitment to integration and was replaced by an assumption about black power and black is beautiful and say it loud say it loud i'm black and i'm proud there and living through that in an intimate relationship proved enormously difficult and i and sad to this day that I was not able to persevere and adapt and do whatever needed to be done. We tried hard to save the marriage and we couldn't do it. Um, it, it came at a really, really bad time for Tony who was just, I think, about 16. And... Uh, which, which time? The first, the first separation. No, the first separation. I was like, 12. we're still in Chicago. Yeah. I was thinking of the, the time from South Carolina, actually, oh. which was sort of the last. Uh, yeah, the first one was in Chicago. Like Chicago, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, it was really tough. And um, I am just so deeply grateful that my kids, despite the pain of the, that divorce, um, have always been generously loving and supportive both of us, um, and in addition, the judge at our divorce hearing gave me a piece of advice I've tr- tried really hard to follow, and, and that is, no matter what, you don't say anything bad about your wife to your kids. She is one of the most important people in their life, as you are. And I've tried to respect that. and. Uh, I think the kids have have honored me by their
0: faithfulness. Absentee fathers is an issue in every community. Yeah. It is a predominantly disproportionate issue in the black community. And again in my opinion, the survey shows that there's there's additional struggles and pressures with black families that they have all the same responsibilities and job paying and family leading and decision making and everything that that traditional white families have, plus the burden of again, being black and having to work a little harder and having to you know, let's say there's 10 jobs available 10 different employers, even if only one of them is racist which is generous that means they only have access to 90% of the same jobs, or 80% of two of them are racist and, and they only have this a similar percentage of opportunities to move up and then every marriage is burdened by financial struggles and raising the children and agreements and disagreements on housing and and all these issues and when you combine that because it makes it a little harder to raise a black child it makes it a little harder to get a, a good job for a black person it makes it a little harder for a black person to have financial security especially since we're less than a generation removed from redlining policies and and black people not being able to marry white people and black people not being able to buy property and all these things are, are literally one generation. My generation suffered from it. I'm 56 years old. I'm, I'm, you know, My dad generation couldn't imagine equal footing. So the idea to treat it like it's ancient history and it doesn't matter, I think is part of the systemic problem. And, and that I think contributes to higher numbers. And I think you'll find those same higher numbers I'm quoting without facts here, but I, I think you'll find that same in other minority communities that divorce rates, single fathers, things like that are, are more prevalent, again, because of the inherent pressures and the inherent uh, burdens that makes what's already tough. Marriage is tough. <laughs> you know, going through life is tough. Raising kids is tough. And, and when you add ancillary burdens on top of that, it makes it even harder.
1: It's a fact, too, you know, that the civil rights movement had an enormous impact on a variety of communities. One of them was, of course, the, the, the women and the women's liberation movement. And so when, when you talk about single families these days, you do have to think very seriously about the fact that it has dramatically impacted the white community as well as virtually every other community. Uh, There are some ethnic groups, obviously, that have an easier time with a strong female figure in the home than others. I'm thinking specifically of the Latino community. Um, Black men are not so generous. And so uh, a strong woman in the family with with a black man makes life incredibly difficult. And so, um, and there is a history, you know, that from slavery where the woman, partly because of her sexual attractiveness and partly because the white owners were far more willing to invest a certain amount of trust in women that they were not willing to trust in, in men, um, that, that women become favored. Um, and black men became weakened um, and resentment and pain of various sizes and sorts followed that and we're still living with the, with the ingredients there. There have been some really bad habits that men have gotten into and, and women don't like some of those bad habits and are very much free to say they don't like them. Um, and so it's tougher to be a, um a man today than it was before. but freedom does that. You know it, when when a woman is free to say what she really thinks, things are gonna be more difficult than they were before when oh she was God. more me you are gonna edit this out
0: and <laughs> when, <she, laughs> when she was more submissive.
1: No, no, I got. It. I totally it's, understand. It's
0: not. I, I do understand that. It's a very traditional. It's a very traditional argument, and it's a very popular argument right now. And it's not completely untrue. It's not. It's not inherent garbage. But the idea that that it's harder to be a man is only because the definition for a man used to be very straightforward. It used to be: be tough, don't cry, provide for the family, do go to work, come home. You know. You know what. Be a man. Be a man. Don't cry. Be a man. Don't be a little boy. Be a man. Now you're acting like a girl. And I and become very easily defined. And so so people in attempts to be a man had a very simple direction. It's just as easy to be a man as soon as you let go of all of that. And as soon as you redefine being a man, it's it's just as easy. You, you, you come every day faced with something. Do the right thing. Try and stand for the right things. Um, make decisions that benefit people other than yourself sometimes. And, you know, that's a thumbnail, be a man, but there's, 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 no, there's no definition anymore. So in some ways, I, I guess it's more, more challenging to find out what being a man means, but in other ways, it's much easier just to be a man because it's broader and you don't have to, you know, I always, <laughs> I like to sing, I like show tunes, I like things like that, so I always, and I don't drink beer. So those two things disqualified me from being a man for a long time. Uh, it's more humorously, but those are things you do. Men drink beer. What do you do? You go drink beer. Oh, we oh, don't sing. Women, women sing. Men don't sing. And and now, you're you're free. It's broader. And I don't even want to say the cost of it, but an ancillary thing of that is that that women are stronger as well. And women can now vocalize things that they like and don't like. And some women and some men absolutely like the old definition of a man. And I put it in a boxing game and that's okay. Right, yeah, they, that's okay. Yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with being a strong man. There's nothing wrong with opening doors and, and paying for meals and doing all that stuff. But if that's not you, that's okay. And there's somebody out there for you. And the problem with the, the traditional masculinity is, is we've been very slow to embrace other interpretations of masculinity because we want it defined. We want to know if we fit in this box, if we're a man, damn it. And and if we don't fit in this box, well, you're less than a man because I'm in this box. And all the men, we're in the box. All you outside, not men. And that makes it easy. And it's it's just different. It's not, it's not you know, again, you just worry about yourself. Open doors, pay your bills, pay the check, do whatever. Great. But once you cross over to judging other men and their shortcomings to fit in your box, to me that makes you a lot less of a man and more of a coward or a bully or or dumb, you know, who just can't think outside of this box. And you know, I I like to think the traditional roles of men are still important.
1: My advice is keep at it. Keep walking. You know, it's it's very peculiar, you know, in a democracy we think Somehow, somebody else is going to take care of keeping things straight. Well, nobody else is. We need to be ready all the time to stand up, find out what's going on, and to be prepared to do what we have to do to set it right. And unless we are so prepared, we're going to find ourselves doing this again. And it's my hope that what this teaches us is exactly that. You can't quit. You can't stop. You can't go to sleep. You can't give up. You've got to stay out there fighting and making it clear that you will stand up for the things you know to be wrong. Not just today, but any day they occur. So let's do it right. Let's, let's really make this a march for justice. Let's really be sure that this country can hold its head up as a country that leads the world in doing what is just for all of its citizens. How we get there is the hard work. It's the details. It's why we can't sit down. It's why we can't go to sleep. This isn't finished by demonstrations. This is finished when we sit and consult and agree and establish an atmosphere of justice for all. There is a consciousness that the things we say are are heroes have a, a real impact on the culture. So that when you wave the Confederate flag at the racetrack, you're saying somehow, the at least hinting somehow, that the past associated with that flag, which includes slavery and a civil war, are somehow okay. Well, they're not okay. And we need to think, always need to think, you know, about who our heroes are, there are no perfect human beings, and so in one way there might not be any statues. You know, and that would not be bad. Um, but there are some folks who have done some good things. And maybe we want to put up a statue. Uh, but if there is any question about it, then in my judgment that statue should come down. It's it's a discussion we ought to have. You know it's it's disappointing as hell to me when i go to went to the harvard business school and i said how would you calculate the impact that slavery had on the u.s ability to become economically dominant in the country you know could we measure that impact in dollars Obviously, what I was trying to get at was a dollar amount that we then would set as a mark for reparations. Um, but no, they've never—they've never even looked at it. They've never even thought about it. Um, so, um, reparations is a, is a serious issue. You know, you—you you don't treat a group of people the way we have treated blacks in this country without facing. The fact that that cost something. Oh,
0: yes. More than money.
1: More than money. Mm -hmm. And unless you face the cost directly, one of the great things about South Africa was the commission that required the supporters of apartheid to face directly charges of what they had done. Well, we're not in the same era these days, but we need to face exactly what we have done, and we need to make up for it. We need to face the cost. We need to face up to the fact that there was a cost to the history of slavery that this country perpetuated. I'm saying we have to face up to it. That, to me, is what the foundation of reparations is all about the issue of how we make reparations is wide open as far as I'm concerned I am not looking for a handout Mm -hmm. you know there is when you say justice we sometimes really get our heads screwed up There are three levels of justice that I'm concerned about. Distributive justice, which is really simple. Kids know how to do it. You got a bag of candy and there you got six friends, one for you, one for you, one for you, one for you, one for you. So when you look at the society, then where distributive justice exists, that should be the result. The kids would all end up with the same number of candies in their bag. That's one level of justice. Then there's restorative justice. Okay, I'm not going to give you any of my candy, period. I'm not gonna do it because you're black and you don't deserve to have any candy. So then I have to make up for, restore somehow, the damage I have done to that individual or that group of people. That's the end result that we're looking for. You know we use distributive justice to say how bad or how good a job are we doing you know if if as a matter of fact you got uh, 900 um, folks in the population who um, are black and none of them have a job something's wrong Um, that's the foundation we look at ourselves through the lens of distributive justice how well have we really, you know, 90% and 1% uh, d- distributive justice just got sat on. You know, the, the, there's no way in the world to justify that. And then the question becomes, how, what do you do about it? And that's restorative justice. And the answers to that don't come off the top of your head. you got to think about it and you got to work at it. And the final level, as I've said, is creative justice. And, and that's at the place where... We just do as a we don't just do, but we learn to do as a nation what is really needed, what is really good for other folks. You know, we we freely sacrifice what our self interest is to, to be sure that the other person is taken care of. That's that's sacrificial. That's love. You know, that in some people's mind is crazy, but. Um, that for me is the third, the third level of justice, where we get to the point where we're more concerned about your welfare mm-hmm. than I am about my
0: own welfare. Don't assume that the rhetoric you've heard your whole life is correct. And, and it very well may be, I'm not going to say it's wrong, but let's entertain the notion that a lot of people are passionate about another side of this issue. And let's try and find out why. Let's try and find out, well, what led to this? What's the history behind this? Let's try and find out why we may need to adjust our thinking, you know, and, and let's try to adjust it, and let's be mindful of what's going on. And again, optimistic that more people are doing that, and with more resources and history and things like that, I think we're heading in the right direction. I'm really
1: living with the hope that we're gonna get it right this time, and that there is a quality out there now that uh, strikes me as more powerful and longer longevity, more longevity, than anything we've ever seen before. Um, And I,
0: I just say, keep it going. Keep it going. I want to give a shout-out and a big thank you to Sarah over at Popular Nation. You can find more stories like this and a variety of fascinating, well-crafted stories told by Sarah at Popular Nation. Popular Nation on YouTube, Popular Nation on Facebook, or OnePopularNation.com. It's a media news company that provides excellent stories. And she did the narration and the editing. You can find the full interview on Popular Nation on YouTube. So check it out, Popular Nation. Thanks, Sarah. As for me... I'm simply... Tony in the Mesa in
1: Mesa,
0: Outro. Outro 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 And that's going to do it for another episode of Tony on the Mic Thanks for listening, thanks for supporting I want to thank my guests, I want to thank my sponsors And you can find more info and episodes at TonyOnTheMic.com Tony on the Mic on Twitter, on TikTok, on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube All these platforms are slowly becoming populated with quality entertainment products So check it out and tell your friends and click and like and subscribe and all that stuff.